you in peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our sermon text for our meditation this morning is our gospel lesson for this Sunday recorded for us in the Gospel of St. John, the first chapter, verses 29 through 41, and the sermon today will focus on verse 29 through 34, but I'd like to read the gospel in its entirety at this moment, and so I invite you to please rise. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, The one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was, but I came baptizing with water so that he would be revealed to Israel. John also testified, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove from heaven and remain on him. I myself did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this myself and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing there again with two of his disciples. When John saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and saw them following him, he asked, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He told them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his own brother Simon and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. You may be seated. Dear fellow redeemed, perhaps it's hard for us in this modern era to Imagine what worship must have been like for the children of Israel, especially at the tabernacle and later on at the temple. How different their experience would have been worshiping God in those places from our experience here. Maybe imagine for a moment the sights, the smells, and the sounds. I've wondered if heading in the temple would have been similar to maybe a barnyard, right? As you'd hear all of the animal noises, as you'd smell the animals as well that were being brought for sacrifice, as you'd see them with your own eyes, and as you'd enter into the courtyard, though, things would change. Maybe new smells, maybe the smell of smoke, maybe the smell even of a barbecue. And what would you see with your own eyes? You'd see that priest offering up the sacrifice, the carcass of an animal on top of that massive altar as the smoke would rise to the heavens. And that altar was not clean, but it was stained with blood that had been splattered upon it time and time and time again. Now how different the sights and smells and sounds of worship must have been for them compared to our own worship today in this very austere sanctuary. Yet we note this. There is at least one similarity, right? We think about this piece of furniture, don't we? What is it? It's designed to be not just 
a table, but it is specifically designed as an altar. And yet, how different its purpose as it holds candles, a cross, offering plates, a place to hold the prayer books, and occasionally the communion elements. And yet it stands here today really as a symbol and a reminder of something. It's a reminder of God's sacrificial system, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do so under the theme, Look, the Lamb of God. And we consider God's sacrificial system, and we also consider God's sufficient payment for sin. Sometime after Jesus was baptized by John at the Jordan River, sometime after the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, we find Jesus back there again at the Jordan River. And John sees him, and while he's talking to a group of people, he pauses for a moment, and he points to Jesus, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's kind of a strange way to refer to the Messiah. After all, we don't find the Messiah referred to by that name many times in the Old Testament. In fact, more often we hear of God's people referred to as sheeps and lambs, and, and God himself is referred to as the shepherd. There is only one time in the entire Old Testament where the Messiah is referred to in this way, and that's found in Isaiah chapter 53, where he's described like this, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So why does John use that term? If John wants everyone to know that Jesus is the Messiah, as we talked about last week, the anointed of God, the one chosen for his work of salvation, why does he choose this really obscure way to refer to the Messiah as the Lamb of God? Well, one thing John is doing is he is referring to God's sacrificial system. And there's a couple things that we're going to think about with that sacrificial system. We think about why God put it in place. And one of the reasons was to show the seriousness of sin. And one of the other reasons was to show that through the shedding of blood, sin could be atoned for, man's relationship with God restored. We think about that first part, though. The sacrificial system showed the seriousness of sin. What God was doing by demanding sacrifices of his people for the sins they committed, whether even sins they were aware of or not, God demanded that animals be brought and that their throats slit and that their blood drain and that the carcasses be burned up upon the altar. And why did he do that? Well, it was to show that sin is serious. All sin is serious. That it would require a life to be given because that sin was committed. Now, I know in our world today, we maybe don't think about sin quite in those terms, do we? We talk about white lies, right? Yeah, it's maybe sort of wrong, but not really. Maybe say murder, rape, those things. Those are big deals. Those are big sins. They have to be accounted for. There's punishment that has to be made for those. But what about for gossip? Is it really wrong after all? What if I was speaking only the truth and not even lying about my neighbor? Or what about my lust that I have? Who is it really hurting? Or my hatred or, or greed? Are those really that serious? Well, God is showing with the sacrificial system, 
these sins are absolutely serious, and that they require the blood of an animal, the blood that would be spilt to make atonement. Think about the, the role of the priests in the Old Testament. The priests not only were the ones who would offer that sacrifice up on the altar, but the priests also had this role. They also were to examine the animal before it was brought for sacrifice, to ensure it was the right kind of animal, because God had required different animals for different sins, but also to inspect the animal to ensure that it had no birth defects, to ensure that it was perfectly um, one color and, and not spotted, that there was nothing wrong with the animal. And why was God doing this? Well, part of the reason is God didn't want people to simply give their leftovers to him. Simply get to give him the animals that would have lesser value in the marketplace and so forth. God wanted an animal that's perfectly intact. And so the priest would examine, is this the right animal? Is this the animal that God is going to accept for your sin? God will accept this one. He won't accept that one. We think about also as well. What that sacrificial system did is it did not only show the seriousness of sin, but it also shows the way through which mankind could be made right with God. You know, in Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of that letter says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He talks about that only through the shedding of blood could man be made right with God. Blood atonement is what God demands. And yet, strangely enough, he goes on in the very next chapter to say this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if blood is required, if sacrifice is required for the forgiveness of sins, and the blood of bulls and goats can, can never atone for sin, what can? Now we think about animal life in our world today, right? An animal life, in, in some ways, of course, is lesser in value than human life. Maybe think of the, the millions upon millions of animals that must be butchered for market every single day so they can be sold in the grocery store, so that they can be fed to us in restaurants, so we can eat their meat at home, and no one bats an eye, right? But think about when we hear if a hundred, or if even ten, or if even one innocent human being's life was taken. There's an outcry, isn't there? Maybe we remember that especially at this time of year. We remember that just a week from today, we recognize the 50-year anniversary of that terrible Supreme Court decision of concerning Roe versus Wade. And even though we are, are grateful and, and praise God that it was overturned this past summer, we know this, that abortion is still being carried out in our own country. It's still being carried out in our own state, in our own county, in our own city. And why are Christians so upset about it? It's because it's the taking of an innocent life, of human life, and that life has value. It wasn't the animals that God said that I make them in my own image, but it was mankind. It wasn't the animals that God gave both body and soul, but mankind. We recognize life is valuable. Human life 
And really that's what God requires, something far greater than merely the sacrifices of animals. But in Psalm 49, we hear this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. What God says there in that psalm is that even if someone was to lay down their life for a friend, even if one human being was to give their life in payment for another human being, that still wouldn't be enough to cover that person's sin, to make them right with God, to rescue them from the pit of hell. So why then does John point to Jesus and say, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how could that human being possibly do what John says? Well, the reason that he can do it is found in some other things that John says. As it points out in our lesson for today, as John said before, this is the one I was talking about when I said, the one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. It's a very curious statement of John, isn't it? John knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was his cousin. He knew that he was six months older than Jesus. And yet, how can he possibly say that Jesus is the one who comes after me, yet outranks me because he existed before me. Well, it's because John recognized who Jesus is, that he is more than merely his cousin, he is more than merely a man, but he is God himself, isn't he? Why is it important that, that John make this statement in our lesson for today, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Now, it's interesting to think about who John is. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, we find out about the annunciation of John's birth. And do you remember that story? Do you remember how it took place? It was the angel Gabriel that spoke to John's father, Zechariah. And where was he? He was in the temple. He was in the holy place, the place that only the priests could enter And he is there in that room by himself when the angel appears to him. So what does that mean concerning John's father, Zechariah? Well, he most definitely was a priest, wasn't he? Not just John's father, Zechariah, but also his mother, Elizabeth, was from the priestly line. So what would that mean concerning John? That John, by blood, was a priest. Think now what John does there at the River Jordan as he points to Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is carrying out the role of the priest. The role of the priest in saying that this animal, this one, this sacrifice is acceptable to God. This one can actually atone for sin. Again, how could it? How could it? How could Jesus pay for the sins of the world? And I know we've probably done this before, but it's good to to think about in our own minds how many sins we've ever committed in our own lives. Not just in our actions, not just in the words we speak, but even in our thoughts. Would you say that it would number in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions, the numbers of sins that you've committed in your entire life? Now think about all of those millions of sins that everyone in this room has ever committed. 
What could be a high enough price to pay for all of the millions of sins that you've committed, let alone all the millions of sins that all of the people here have committed, let alone all of the millions of sins that the billions of people that exist on this planet today have ever committed? What would be a great enough thing to be given to actually make payment, sufficient payment for all of that sin? It would have to be something so incredible, valuable, the most valuable thing in all existence. Maybe some of you are familiar with that old Disney cartoon, Aladdin. If you remember back in that cartoon and how that movie ends, you remember that the bad guy, Jafar, finally gets a hold of the lamp, doesn't he? And, and he rubs the lamp and he wishes to be a great sultan. And so Jeannie says, poof, you're a great sultan. I think the greatest sultan in the world is what he asked for. But he soon realizes that there's someone more greater than the greatest sultan in the world. And so he rubs the lamp again and asks to be the greatest sorcerer in all of the world. Because he realized that sorcerers have more power than sultans. So again, Jeannie says, poof. He makes him the greatest sorcerer in all the world, and he's able to carry out so many supernatural things with his power as the greatest sorcerer. But do you remember what Aladdin did to finally trick Jafar? He made the point that there is someone greater than the greatest sorcerer in all of the world. It was the genie, right? Because the genie is the one who made him into that great sorcerer. And it was a big trick, as we know, as he convinces him to wish to become a genie and he gets trapped inside of the lamp. But the reason I bring this up is to think about that. What is the greatest thing in all of existence? Well, it's the thing that made everything else. The thing that said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the one who said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man rose to life from the dead and walked out of his grave, isn't it? That's the one that God has chosen. That's the one that John was recognizing at the River Jordan. The one who would be given as a sacrifice for your sins. But not just for your sins, but for the sins of the entire world. God himself would go to the cross to live and to die and to offer that life for you as sufficient payment for your sins. What comfort we find, as the writer of the Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice. That's it. One sacrifice would be made for sin. It would be made by the most valuable thing in all existence, God himself, for you and for me, that we can be reassured that our sins are fully forgiven, that we are right with God in him. You know, it's interesting to think that we today in our own sanctuary have something that reminds us of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that reminds us of the seriousness of sin, that something has to die because our sin is so great, but also to be reminded that through the shedding of blood, through sacrifice, sin could be atoned for. And I'm not really talking about the altar now, but I'm talking about the cross, Remember there, right? God gave his son for us, and we can be assured today that it was sufficient payment for our sins. They've been all taken away, and we are right with God in him. Amen. I invite the congregation to please rise.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.